and where they were, bullets were still flying around. He's got out of the vehicle. He's made the assessment of me, and he has assessed that he needs to treat me immediately. Um, if he didn't treat me immediately, I wouldn't survive. He said I was 30 seconds from death. He treated me for 10 minutes in direct line of fire. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Today's guest was a South Australian police officer for 42 years, 10 years of which was spent with the special task and rescue group known as STAR. Within this, he was the sniper, tactical diver and counter-terrorist operative. Whilst on an operation with STAR, he was shot 14 times in less than 5 seconds in South Australia's longest ever siege and lay on the ground for 3 hours with massive injuries before the rescue team and medical team risked their lives to get him out. Episode 65, Derek McManus. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. It, I, I kind of feel honoured coming into other people's space. Do you like that? Oh... Uh, you know, uh, I, I don't see myself as a celebrity in any way, shape or form. Um, I've got a really good story. Yep. Um, but I listen to these podcasts and I just go, oh, I'm amazed with that person. I'm amazed with that person. And to be thrown into the same arena, it, it's just kind of an honour. It, it's, you know, it's uh, something I don't want to underrate. That's very yeah. sweet because I was reading your story and I thought I have to ha- have this person on the podcast. And I mean, I've been very lucky. I've had incredible guests on the podcast with very, um, I don't know, I don't incredible stories, I suppose, using incredible too many times in that sentence. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, it's the reality of it. But, I mean, your story, I mean, you got shot 14 times. Like, your story is pretty incredible. (laughs) Yeah, but but it was only 14. Only Only 14. It could have been 15. (laughs) Correct. Correct. I had somebody say to me. I had somebody say to me one time, um, "Oh, isn't it lucky you didn't get shot thirteen times? Because that would have been unlucky." Hang on, what? So the fourteenth was the lucky one. That's the one that saved my life. I think you walked away from that conversation fairly quickly. No, I didn't. It, it, it was it was said out of genuine concern and and, and with compassion and, and all that sort of it, it was a genuine compliment they were trying to be nice they just didn't see the irony in it you know well i i, I do want to get into the story of how you got shot shot 14 times and it was in your time in the south australian police force which you were in for 42 years and you were part of the star group and you'll have to explain what star is Okay, so yep, uh, Star Group is Special Task and Rescue Group. Uh, so in the Special Task and Rescue Group, we deal with high-risk arrests, hostage siege situations, counter-terrorism, uh, cliff rescue, cave rescue, mine rescue. Uh, we do deep diving recovery operations for people who drown in 
uh, caves and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I was a diver as well. Um, my, ta my skills were uh, a sniper, a diver, uh, and I trained with the SAS, the Military SAS, Special Operations Section uh, in the military, uh, in counter-terrorist techniques. Um, okay. So reasonably highly trained. So what's the, what's the career path to get into that? Because, I mean, you don't look all that old now and you were in the police force for 42 years. So how old were you when you first joined? I, I really, really love you at the moment, Fiona. Don't look all that old. <laughs> I, will, I will soak that up. Um, I'm actually well, you six, don't. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm actually 62. Okay. Spring chicken. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so career path is just join the police force as anybody else would, uh, go out on patrols, um, you have to be seen as being a, an exceptional patrol officer. You then apply to go into Star Group. Uh, the selection criteria is uh, as horrendous as any of the special forces around the world. Um, it is interviews, um, one-day physical testing, just to see whether you've got the capacity to go on to the three-day or four-day courses it is now. Uh, and that four-day course is a 24-7 well, 24-7 in four days. Mm, that's really compact. Um, but it's a 24-hour-a-day course. There is no time down. Um, and you, so you do the one-day testing to see if you've got the ability to do that. If you get through the one-day testing to see if you've got the capacity, you then go into psychometric testing um, and you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, and then when you get on the course, uh, the course is designed for you to fail. Mm. Um and it's what you do in failure that really shows up as who you are as a, a person. Because a lot of the operations that we go into, um, the logical, sensible, smart person would go, you're an idiot, don't do that. And we go, bring it on, we want to do this. We love it. So uh, the course is designed to see what you do in failure and what you do under stress. So how old were you when you entered the police force and then how long were you on the force for before you started that recruitment process for start? Okay, so I joined the police force uh, just before I turned 17. Wow. Uh, I did a three-year training, which is unheard of these days. Yeah. Uh, but it was back in the old day when, you know, they thought it took a long time. But, you know, I was a 17-year-old. Um, mm. So they trained us for three years. I graduated at the age of 20. Um, I then did nine years as a general patrol officer. No, hang on. 79, yeah, no, 10 years as a general patrol officer. Um, and believe it or not, the reason I went into Star Group is that I was not getting satisfied in the general police. In the general police. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I'm bored. And I started looking through the paper. And this shows how, old or, uh, how long ago it was. I was looking through the newspaper at the <laughs> ads for jobs. There was no seek back in those days. Um, and uh, For those said that me, are overseas, seek is like an online job. Portal. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, there was no online. There was not even internet back in my day. Mm. Um, and so uh, I was looking through at other jobs and somebody said, um, why don't you try Star Group? And the thought the process that I went through was I can't find anything else that interests me. Star Group sounds really interesting, exciting. I'm going to have a crack at that uh, while I try and figure out what I want to do. Um, I went, and you can't just have a crack. You've got to be absolutely focused, dedicated, driven to get into Star Group. I understood that. I put in the training. I did preparation. Um, I did the course. I passed first time through. Perfect. Okay. 
So we're talking about the recruitment in Star Group. Um, we just had some technical issues. That's why. <laughs> if it's a bit clunky on the recording, that's why we had some technical issues. So you're talking about um, your recruitment process into Star Group. So you were saying that it was a three-day process? Um, mine was three days. They've extended it to four days because uh, they were trying to condense so much into it. People were getting injuries and we were losing good people because of injuries. Um, so they've extended it to four days now, but it's four days of 24 hours a day. Um, like they give you downtime for sleep, but they don't actually tell you how long you're going to have. They just say you have downtime now and you have to work out whether you clean your boots, clean your clothes, uh, go and update yourself on the latest intelligence that they're going to be testing you, you on over the next uh, four days, or you eat, you drink, you rest, you sleep. Um, and uh, there were times on the course where you were asleep for half an hour and at three o'clock in the morning, you finally got to bed at, you know, and you got half an hour sleep and they come in and wake you up and take you out for another six to seven hours before they give you downtime at 10 o'clock in the morning and you've got to work out whether you sleep at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, so it's just putting you right onto the edge. The idea of it is, you know, it's designed to fail um, so that you do make mistakes and see how you recover. But it's also designed that you are so exhausted, you don't have the ability to think through, this is what I want to do, this is what they expect me to do, this is what the great person would do, so this is what I'm going to do. You're just so exhausted, you go, oh, stuff it, I just need to do this. So they get down to the real personality uh, and understand how you're going to respond to the greatest pressures. So are you fully, if you pass that four days, are you fully okay you're in the star group? No. There are quite a number. So if you pass is different to if you finish, right? There are lots of people who get through, finish the four days, uh, and then in the assessment afterwards they go, no, you actually didn't perform well here, you didn't perform well there, um, so you're going to have to do another selection course or you're just not acceptable. Um, okay. So, but there's yeah. no further training that you have to do in terms of selection. I mean, oh, you get not the tick of approval, but there's no other further... Um, essentially, no. Um, you are accepted into Star Group, and then once you get into Star Group, um, there is a about a three-month training phase where you get to know weapons, you get to know ropes, you get to know tactics, you get to know uh, all the specialist skills that we need to know, um, or the basic understanding of the specialist skills. Um, and you can still underperform uh, in those specialist skills and be asked to, to leave anyway. Um, but essentially most people who get to that point go through. Do you get to uh, state within the group what your specialty – I mean, you mentioned that you're a sniper. So do you get to say, I want to be a diver or I want to be sniper or I want to be this or I want to be that? Do you get that, yep, that opportunity? Okay. Yep, um, So, And there are a range of different specialist skills um, that you can get. There are bomb techs, there are – uh, VIP security divers, uh, drivers, um, you know, and, and all sorts of explosives um, experts. Um, and I was a diver and the dive course, I actually had to do the dive course twice because I failed the dive course the first time. Uh, the dive course is actually harder than the original star group course. There are a lot of other people in star group who are not divers that will dispute that. Um, but we divers know it's the hardest course. Uh, what makes it the hardest? <laughs> um, it is actually six weeks long. It is absolutely horrendous. We're exposed to absolute extremes of depth and cold um, and pressure. 
um, and the cold is one of the most horrendous things. We were diving in the Murray River. Uh, oh, freezing. Which, well, and it's when the snows were melting and coming yeah. down and absolutely freezing. We were diving in there for three hours without wetsuits on. Where were um, you training from if you were in the Murray? Uh, Adelaide. Uh, okay. So, yeah, we were in Adelaide. and <clears throat> I forget you know, that the Murray's that long. Yeah, yeah, so right, comes all the way down. <laughs> it empties out into the ocean from South Australia. Yeah. Uh, but in South Australia, we've also got the um, uh, the limestone caves down at uh, Mount Gambier, um, and people don't know how deep or how long those caves are. Um, and so we go deep diving down there. And for the divers um, in listening to this podcast, the average diver in um, the... Uh, civilian world will train to 30 meters and it's extremely uh, hard to go deeper than that you've got to do certain courses uh, we were diving down to 62 meters um, and i was trained for commercial part three level so the divers in the in the listening to the podcast will know what that means but it's extremely um, demanding uh, we were wearing all sorts of different headgear uh, and breathing apparatus surface supply uh, breathing we didn't get to mix gases, but anyway, that's going on about the diving too much. Oh, so you uh, weren't, you weren't doing re, you weren't doing rebreathers or anything like that. No, we didn't do rebreathers. Um, uh-huh. We didn't need to go that covert for what we were doing. Um, yeah. When it gets to that covert, that's when we uh, cross train with the SAS and we bring in the boat crews and the divers from the SAS uh, to do that level. How did you go with the actual being in the cave? I interviewed um, Craig uh, Ch- Callan. Callahan. Challen. Callan. Yeah. Challen, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, who, so those that don't know, he was in the Thai um, schoolboy rescue. He did. He was involved in that and he was going into the cave with them. Um, so, yeah, so I interviewed him and one, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that you're in this dark, enclosed area and with a limited air supply. <laughs> It's just terrifying. <laughs> and this is what I mean. The star group, people like Craig, um, we take on challenges where people just go, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? And you go, because I love it. Um, but, you know, when we were diving into those caves, we had to take our cylinders off, push our cylinders through, take a breath, push it through, squeeze through ourselves, get through, get the, the breather back. Um, and get back in breathing, put the cylinders back on and keep on going. So, so but what happens through... if you get stuck? What happens if you, you had a big lunch you... and you get stuck <laughs> in that little spot? <laughs> well, you you are in trouble if that does happen. So it pays not to have a big lunch before you go diving anyway. Um, but but it's all... So, so a lot of people say that um, it's amazing that I do so much risky stuff. So just addressing what you're, you're, you're talking about here is that we do. We do a lot of risky stuff. I do not see myself as a risk taker, though. I see myself as a risk manager. Right. Right. And that's, so every situation you go into, you, you, uh, you're assessing the risk. Absolutely. Every time. Before right. I take my cylinders off, I make an assessment of that hole. Am I able to make and, – and I make an assessment of this hole maybe with no light. So I've got to actually feel my way around, assess what's on the other side. Does it open up? Yes, it does. Um, and then I make sure that if I push my cylinder through, it's still within reach if I do get stuck and I have to wait for my diet to just pass through my body a little bit further so I can squeeze through there. So everything is risk assessed. We don't take risks, oh, somebody else has done it, so we should be able to do this. No, we take a risk assessment approach every time we do something. 
See, I don't think that that's a – I understand what you're saying, but if that hole's too big and you've come through a narrow opening, like, you can't back up. You can't swim backwards. You yes, know? You, well, yes, you can. Yes, can you, you can. Oh, okay. Uh, when, when you really need to do something, you can do almost anything. Right? Uh, oh, my and God, it, terrifying. And it, is, and it is about making sure that you don't get to a point where you are so stuck that you can't move, right? And that's all part of the risk assessment. What was it about the diving? Because sniping and diving are very different skill sets. What was it about the diving that interested you compared to the sniping? Is that the um, right technical word? Sniping? Is that a word? Yeah, yeah sniping. I just made yeah, it sniping. up. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's no, not a word. It is now. <laughs> no, no. Snipe, sniping is very much a word, very much a word. Um, basically, it was about getting a specialist skill. Um, okay. I, I've already had my uh, civilian diving uh, license. Um, and I just wanted to take on the extra challenge. There are things divers do, and again, this goes to people go, how could you possibly want to do that? So there are things divers do that they are really proud of. Oh, and, and I'm thinking this through as I'm talking and, and saying it, and your questions are great because it's, it's making me think. Everybody in Star Group loves to take on a challenge. We love yeah. to take on the things that other people go, how could you possibly do that? And we believe that we can achieve it, right? And again, this is about risk assessment, not just risk taking. Uh, but the diving was one of those extra challenges. We go down into the darkest, ugliest, uh, most dangerous waters uh, to find people who have drowned. Now, we are going through trees where all of our equipment is getting snagged and caught up. And, and we've got a retrieval system that we know how we can get back out and if we really get stuck, somebody can follow our line down, find us, and give us a hand. We've got these days we've got through water communication, which is a lot safer. Uh, before it used to be a certain type of tugs on a rope, um, kind of like Morse code, um, but it, it sent a signal. So we've always got the backup, but it's just taking on that extra level of challenge um, and believing that we've got the ability to win. And the diving was just that. It, that another level again. The thing that that from listening to the um, American military podcasts and stuff like that, <clears throat> the thing with the sniper stuff is that you don't realise that you're just lying there for hours on a time being. I just think it would be very boring because you're literally lying there for days on end sometimes. From from what I can, from the stories that I've heard, and then you've got the cave diving, which is like a more action packed. So that's why I'm like it's such a Juxtaposition. Is that the word? Yeah, juxtaposition. juxtaposition. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Um, I haven't had yeah. my second coffee yet. I got a tea instead. <laughs> I like it. Um, <laughs> it is, but but you've got to have a look at the adrenaline that is associated with each of them, right? right. So, as you can see, it the diving is action packed. It's always happening. But if you're a sniper, you are out there for a purpose. There are you're on a knife's edge as to whether something is about to happen or you have to take that shot to negate a target, right? Um, although, let me be very clear, the, the actual role of a sniper, the first priority for a sniper is not to be able to take a shot because that's what everybody goes, sniper, they're out there to shoot, they're out there to kill. The, the immediate role, the first most important role of a, a sniper is to get into position without being seen, without being heard, and be able to report intelligence back to the commander about what's happening in the field so that he can make informed mm. decisions. So mm. we are out there and we are making observations. We are looking for the, the slightest little flick of dust, movement of grass, uh, puff of wind. 
that will in, inform him that that's where the offenders are, uh, are. This is what they're doing. We're looking for the curtain moving in the window so we can identify exactly where terrorists might be. Uh, we're looking for um, the, the movement of people from one area to another and be able to identify whether they are terrorists or whether they're hostages or whether they're good or bad or whatever it might be. So there's, there's a different type of adrenaline associated with it. <clears throat> talk to me about some of the operations that you can talk about that you went on. Story uh, time, Derek. I absolutely. I love story time. <laughs> um, the ones that I can talk about. Uh, so I did a, um, a sniper operation where uh, there was supposedly uh, a crop of drugs in the Adelaide Hills and um, we didn't know who was tending that crop. Um, and so we had to go and sit out there and we were only out there for a couple of days. We had to go and sit out on that drug crop for two days uh, and just watch and wait for people to come. Um, and then once they came, we then had to identify them um, and follow them back to vehicles or back to houses to be able to identify you know, where they were, how they were getting in, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, and as people would describe it, that was boring as hell because yeah. there wasn't... There wasn't a lot happening, but when <laughs> one of the things that we had to do within that operation was that there wasn't a lot of movement. There were houses nearby, so we started going closer to the houses um, to try and identify who was associated with the drug crop. Um, we got so close to one of the houses that it uh, sparked one of the, the small dogs that was associated with it, and the dogs came out barking at us. They were held back by... A, a six foot cyclone fence. They were never going to get to us. Uh, but the grass was only about four inches tall that we were lying in. And of course, the owners of the dogs came out immediately after the dogs. And they're looking through this area to try and find uh, out where we were. And there were kids, not where we were, uh, sorry, uh, trying to identify what the dogs are barking at. And, the, and we are probably just six foot back from this cyclone fence. Um, lying in grass, which is only four inches tall. Um, and we are so well camouflaged that they had young children out there, they had adults and the dogs, uh, and nobody could identify the two snipers lying in the bush with rifles uh, and all the rest of it. Now, that is adrenaline packed because if we get caught, um, there's no real danger except embarrassment in the section, but we're on the edge we are either going to have a successful investigation or we are going to stuff it right up because of the actions. So we needed to make sure that we were cammed up and in a suitable place that even if they did come out of the house, they weren't going to see us. And, and on that one, it was very, very fortunate uh, that they didn't and we worked out that they were the offenders and blah, 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 with good outcome at the end. But for them to be six feet away from us, us lying in just four inches of grass when you know the body is eight, ten inches, you know, tall when it's lying on its belly um, and they couldn't see us. That was just sensational. Uh, there was another job where uh, we had to go to a remote rural area uh, where an offender was holding uh, his ex-partner at gunpoint. Uh, we got there at three o'clock in the morning um, and uh, we surrounded the house. Uh, we made contact with the offender uh, and then the boss said, we need you to get closer. We need people to look in through the windows. 
uh, I took a certain approach uh, and I got to about 20 feet from the house. And then when I got to that point, I just could see that I could not get any closer without endangering myself. So I then had to rely on other people. Um, the other guys got close to the house and I just gave the observations from the front of the house. Um, and uh, at about four o'clock in the morning, um, the offender came out of the house um, and uh, the Staris just switched. We've got very powerful torches on the ends of our weapons and you could just see these torches like laser beams cutting through the darkness in the outback um, and it was it was just a sight to behold. It was almost like a, a, a fireworks display of lights and you could hear the yelling and the screaming and uh, distraction grenades going in. Um, and it was, for me, it was just a, a sensational sight. Um, the offender did uh, get so scared that he may have dirtied his pants, which made <laughs> it a very uncomfortable ride, not just for him, but for everybody in the car with him <laughs> on his way back to the police station. Um, you don't have something, you don't have like an, an emergency situation, like, I don't know, kit there. So if something like that does happen, they can change before they hop in the car. Well, well, no, we 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 pack our kit. We take what we need to out into the bush, um, and we don't have a change of clothes. Yes, we had toilet paper and all that sort of stuff, so he was able to wipe himself down. But toilet paper doesn't get rid of everything, and you can try and. But he was an offender, and yeah. and so we weren't, you know, overly, overly concerned, concerned about making him the most comfortable he could possibly be. Uh, we didn't want to disregard his safety and, and comfort and everything, but, you know, um, these are awkward. Um, and there was another one that I was going to tell you about. Um, and I and obviously I have to be careful as to how much description I give you. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right. Uh, we had a job which was way, way country. Uh, we'd been doing uh, our shift. We were about six hours into the shift, so there was two hours left. Job came in, um, an offender had been threatening to find his ex-wife who was sleeping with his brother. So, um, you know, all became controversial and he was wandering around the small country town threatening to shoot him if he could find him. So we jumped into cars. We were doing ridiculous speeds. I'll just say ridiculous speeds on the uh, the road. How, to get hang down. on, how long ago was this? I'm sure you could tell us how quick you are going. Uh, well... I mean, we were we were going as far as as fast as the cars would take us. Wow. Okay. Um, and, like two hundred and thirty sort of thing. Well, uh, and, and I don't want to give people you know details that that. Okay. Might, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, we were fully authorized to do everything we were doing. Yeah. You know, fully authorized. There Derek, was a can you just move your life. microphone up? Up. It's just scraping on your. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Not a problem. <laughs> on your beadies. <laughs> <laughs> My little bit of growth, my stubble. You wish it. So we we raced down there and uh, we went straight into action. Uh, we were wearing all black and searching this town. Uh, couldn't find the offender. Uh, the boss made a decision that he would send most of the team down uh, back to town. So we we drove for three and a half hours to get to where we were going. Uh, so he sent most of the team back. Uh, and left myself and one other person down there. So that if he popped his head up, at least we'd have uh, some sort of containment or response immediately. And the idea was that those on night shift would go back and the day shift would come down. 
Um, and when day shift get down there, we could stand down and they would take over the operation. Um, they came down in the helicopter. Uh, we searched again for the offender, couldn't find him. They said, okay, you two who had been here the extended period of time, hop in the helicopter, head home again. Um, and this was the second time. So I was very early in the job in Starry's at that stage. It was only the second time I'd ever been in the helicopter. Um, and so we hopped in the helicopter and I was excited to be in the helicopter, you know, this ride in this multi-million dollar machine, sensational. Um, and I fell asleep within about five minutes <laughs> because I was just so tired. Uh, we got about a third of the way back to town. Uh, the offender was spotted again. They needed the helicopter for that. So the helicopter turned around with us in it. We came back again, did another search for him, couldn't find him again, hop in the helicopter, head home, fell asleep again. A third of the way back, they spotted him again, turn around. I ended up doing, a, I think it was about a 28-hour shift. Um, I'm impressed the helicopter had that much petrol. I know, it was refueling every time oh, okay. we, we landed. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and that's one of the things that we have in place well beforehand is that we know exactly where our stocks are and if we know we're going to be out there, uh, we've got uh, logistics crew back at base and they will make sure those supplies are brought to us by road or whatever you know we need. So the fuel for the helicopter was certainly something that was brought out from the local airport. Yeah. How long had you been in um, Staries, as you as you put it, um, yeah. before you got shot? Five years. Okay. Almost, almost five years to the day. Talk me through that operation and how you ended up um, being shot and then lying there for three hours waiting to, for help. So we, um, I've been in Staries for five years. This particular offender, I had been involved with him in two previous operations. Um, now, he wasn't a violent offender. He'd never actually done anything of violence, but he had made threats to shoot police in the past. Okay. Um, he'd intimidated and threatened other people as well, M not even threatened. He had intimidated other people with the threat that he has weapons, and but he'd never gone so far as to commit an offence before. So he hadn't actually been convicted of anything of violence, but we knew there was a potential. So I'd been involved with him twice before. On this operation, we still knew there was a potential for violence. And when you, sorry, when you say you've yep. been involved with him twice before, what sort of involvement? So he was uh, up on fraud charges. And right. he was when we first started uh, to interact with him is when he made the threats to shoot police. Um, and I think he was, and I can't remember exactly the number he was on at that time, when we arrested him and he shot me, he was looking at 197 counts of fraud, um, and that's just ripping people off for little bits of money, not repairing their car engine properly, uh, going down to the, the fodder store or the, uh, the farm supply store um, and getting stuff on account and not paying for it, um, all that sort of kind of petty theft, but it was mm -hmm. all just fraud matters. Um, so when he first threatened to shoot police, we took his weapons off of him. Um, he managed to, through a bungle in the courts, uh, he managed to get the weapons back. The second job, we went and took the weapons back off of him again, but we only got half of the weapons back the second time. He had hidden the weapons, uh, the rest of the weapons. So when we did the third job, we knew there was a potential that he still had weapons. Um, and lo and behold, he did. Um, so we went there to arrest him. We knocked on the front door. We were wearing flak vests. We call them flak vests. Um, most people would call them bulletproof vests, but we know they ain't bulletproof. Um, 
they're very yeah. they were very, what year are we in now uh we are in 1994 so probably very different to what they are now in terms of resistance of bullets capability no, no. Okay, so the only thing that has changed with the flak vest is the weight of them. Really? The, the technology has become so good that we can lower the weight, uh, but the level of protection is very, very similar. Um, wow. A flak vest, the soft body armour that you see as the, the flak vest or the bulletproof vest, as, as civilians call it, and, and I don't like using that term because it's obviously not the right term. So the, the soft body armour flak vest will only stop a certain type of bullet. Uh, but in Star Group, we had ceramic plates on our chest and on our back. Uh, and that ceramic plate was able to stop the type of bullets that this guy fired. Uh, and one of those bullets hit that ceramic plate and stopped just underneath the heart-lung area. Now, people say to me, well, why don't you have ceramic plates all over you? Each one of those ceramic plates, which was just big enough to cover the vital organs on my chest and on my back, weighed seven kilos. So on plates alone, I was wearing, uh, carrying 14 kilos, mm. as well as a vest, which weighs another 12 to 13 kilos. Uh, then the weapons... Uh, I had two weapons, well, not on this job, but generally we take two weapons. Then we've got the ammunition for those weapons. Then we've got the method of entry tools or the barricade defeating tools um, and uh, as well as distraction grenades. And so we get weighed down uh, a fair bit. So we can't be completely covered. You'd be like Ned Kelly if you were completely covered. Yeah, even Ned Kelly didn't have great protection. But anyway. um, (laughs) Tin cans, not great protection. (laughs) (laughs) Not for the bullets these days. He did well in his day, though. Everybody everybody that's overseas will need to Google Ned Kelly. I'm not going to go in. He was a bush ranger um, back in the day in Australia. One of the local local lads, uh, a folklore hero, so well worthwhile looking him up. Well, it's interesting because he he is a folklore he- hero, but he um he's a criminal. He was a criminal, and he shot police. Like yes. you know, but we celebrate him in Australia. Yeah, <laughs> I think what we cel- celebrate is actually the the rebel element. Yeah, the the standing up to authority when what he believed was authority not doing the right thing by the people, and I think mm. that's the part of Ned Kelly that we actually celebrate. The yeah. criminal side, no, everybody knows he was a criminal. Yeah, but, and yeah. I think also the fact that he just went, oh, I'm just going to put some tin cans on and that's going to stop the bullets and go out there. And... <laughs> and the police in the day were going, oh, my God, we can't defeat him. What do we do? Shoot a little bit lower. Shoot him in the foot. Shoot well, him in the leg. Black oh, powder my goodness. Back then. Black yeah, powder right. back then too. So. Yeah. Anyway. So, so, yeah. You were, so you went up to the door and just knocked on the door with this offender. Yeah, absolutely. And if uh, people want to Google Derek McManus shot 14 times, they'll see the video. Uh, of it, so we approached the door. Yeah, There's yeah, a video absolutely. Of it. Yeah, you didn't tell me. I would have watched absolutely. it before the interview. I would have to Google it now. <laughs> I'm is sorry it, about I, that. Am I going to be um, able to sleep though? Is it really graphic? Obviously, you survive. No, I'm a... talking to you, so it's fine. Yeah, it's kind of a spoiler alert. This part, <laughs> uh, I survived. <laughs> But, um, yeah, no, the video's there. It's the first time we'd ever videoed a job in South Australian police, uh, let alone in Star Group, uh, and it certainly led to uh, the body cams further down the track. Um, But we took a videographer with us 
he was a police officer with a video camera. Um, and what you see is us approaching the door, you hear us knocking, you hear us calling, you see that he doesn't answer. Uh, and then I move a little bit off screen um, and down the side of the house. Now, you hear the, the offender shooting at me, you hear me shooting back, you hear me calling out, I'm hit, I'm hit. Uh, and I have berated the videographer for this because if he had turned the angle of the camera just a little bit, you would have seen the whole lot. He failed me. <laughs> my, my moment of glory that I survived that. No, it, it, it was one of those things I moved off camera uh, and he didn't know that I'd moved off. Um, and he was he was actually... Uh, doing whatever he could to film as well as protect himself. So he was, and we, he and I have a, a, a very good relationship and we laugh about it all the time. Um, but yes, you will see it. You will hear me calling out, I'm hit, I'm hit. Um, what's available on the internet is only a small portion of the whole video. The whole mm. video goes on to show what the boys did while I was lying on the ground and it shows that they wanted to get back to me they were trying to get back to me but they then knew the offender was doing certain things that put their lives in danger so um, they couldn't make any movement and I'm very comfortable with the fact that it was too dangerous for them to try and come and get me. Now you were shot um, you put in your bio that you were shot by a is it a 308? 308, yeah. 7.62, um, the, the largest military general caliber weapon. Uh, it's the same the Chinese use when they go to war. Right. Okay. So he, 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 he wanted to inflict some damage. Uh, there, was no, there was no doubt about it. He, he wanted to inflict damage. Um, he fired 18 times in less than five seconds. Um, the first... I, I was hit 14 times. The first 12 hits, I don't actually remember hitting me. Um, I, it was just, I'm sure my mind was just overwhelmed. I don't remember the, the impact. I don't remember the feeling. Uh, and initially, I didn't even hear the sound of gunfire. All I knew was I was falling to the ground, and I started berating myself as to how I could be so stupid. As I was falling to the ground, I saw small round holes in the glass door that I was approaching. Um, and then I heard the sound of gunfire, but it, it took me the ability to be able to rationalize the information coming in and going small round holes, sound of gunfire, me illogically falling, I must be getting shot. Um, and I rationalized that as I was falling to the ground. Um, I've fallen to the ground and he is still shooting me while I'm on the ground. So there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he didn't want to just inflict uh, pain um, or damage he was attempting to murder me. So you said that you didn't feel the first 12, but you got shot 14. So you felt the set the last two? Correct. Yeah. And this is when I was lying on my back. Um, and uh, my feet were pointing directly at where the bullets are coming from. So he shot me twice in the left thigh at this point. And when those two bullets hit my left thigh, time literally slowed down. I felt like it took 30 seconds for these two bullets to hit me, have their impact, a shockwave to go through my body, the shockwave come back down through my body, the second bullet hit, that same shockwave go up, come back down, 
um, and it seemed like 30 seconds and in that 30 seconds I'm berating myself again how can I lie here and just accept being shot over 30 seconds and do nothing it, it was just the most illogical thing for me I didn't realize until I watched the video afterwards and was able to listen to the the rate of fire and when I fired back um, that it made sense to me that it wasn't 30 seconds and it was just my mind analyzing every little detail um, but when I analyzed it and I thought right I need to do something. Uh, I got over berating myself, um, but I knew that I needed to shoot back in that direction. But as I say, my feet were pointing directly at where I needed to, to shoot. And when you're lying on your back, mm. which, which way do your feet point? Up in the air. Mm. And as I'm lying on my back, I knew that I needed to lift my upper body up so that I could shoot across my feet um, and not shoot myself in the foot. Um, and, but as I've lifted my body up, my feet have come up to counterbalance. And the thought that ran through my mind as I pulled the trigger on that first shot in return fire was I'd better not shoot myself in the foot because the guys at work will give me shit for the rest of my life. And, and I don't embellish that at all. That's exactly what I thought. It didn't stop me doing what I needed to do. Right? I fired back 13 times. Wow. Um uh, I only wanted to fire back six or seven times. I obviously got a little bit excited about it. Um, but but that's exactly what I thought. And people say, how can you have that level of rational thought um, in that process? Um, it's about the preparation beforehand. It's and about, adrenaline, I would say, as well. Um, yeah, there's adrenaline involved yeah. in it as well. Yeah, and adrenaline yeah. certainly helped me to, to manage the pain. Um, there's no two ways about that. But the ability to not be overwhelmed by the circumstances. Now, obviously, initially I was overwhelmed because I still don't remember the sound or, or the feeling of getting shot. But then it was a matter of I had anticipated in my mind uh, that I'm going into a job where I may be shot and injured or I may be shot and killed. And and this is some of the stuff that I talk to um, at people, you know, when I'm at conferences or when I'm running training programs is that, I had prepared so well for the challenges I could realistically expect to encounter. So I knew going into Starry's, I was going to become a sniper, I was going to become a diver, I was going to be trained in counterterrorism. I was going to expect that I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. To prepare myself physically and mentally, and mentally I talk about the intellectual stuff, policies, procedures, how do weapons work, how do you aim, how do you, you know, do all those things, all the, the intellectual stuff. The physical, everybody knows what that means. But I prepared myself emotionally as well. And it's the emotional part that was probably the most important. So five years before the shooting, when I first started uh, in Starry's, I had a conversation with uh, my now ex-wife. And I said, real chance I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. Uh, but I then said, if I die, what will life look like for you? I wanted to know that she had really considered what the impact was going to be on her to make sure that she was fully aware of what she was supporting with me going into Star Group. If she had said, I don't want you to go, would you have still gone? If it came down to uh, either you join Star Group and we divorce or you don't join Star Group and we stay together, uh, it would have been my marriage. My marriage, my family really? was always number one for me. Always. Okay. Now, you can't do Star Group without When you said my marriage, I thought you were going to say you're going to divorce us. That's why I said really. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no. My marriage okay. was, you know, the most sacred thing for me. Yeah. Um, and, and it 
people say to me, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life? I'm going off tangent here a little bit, uh, but I can easily say that the breakup of my marriage two years after the shooting is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I got shot 14 times, came within 30 seconds of death. Uh, the breakup of my marriage uh, is the most disappointing, hurtful time that I've ever had in my life. We'll go into that uh, afterwards. I want to get yeah. back to the, the shooting. Yeah. So you're lying on the ground trying not to shoot your feet when you're returning fire. Yep. Um, Three hours. How did you know fully conscious, how? Fully conscious, okay. watching watching my watch the whole time, uh, and that's a police thing to do. I knew that you know time frames are going to become important when we get to court, uh, and and note the note the language that I'm using here. Um, I know that it's going to become important when I get to court. Hmm. So I I was fully aware of how bad my injuries were. Um, Oh, actually fully aware. That's probably an overstatement. I knew my injuries were bad. So um, uh, you said that you only were really co uh, cognitive of the fact you got shot in the leg twice. So were you, when you were lying there, realised I've been shot multiple times? Yeah, absolutely. So I could feel at the time that I was shot, I only felt the two bullets hit me. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as I fired back and moved away, I instantly felt the, the rest of the pain. It wasn't massive pain, but I could acknowledge where I felt the pain. So it felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. So I knew I'd been punched in the stomach. Um, I actually didn't feel my right Achilles tendon. One of the bullets took out 80% of my Achilles tendon. I oh. didn't feel that. Um, my left forearm, a single bullet went through my left forearm um, and I actually got to my feet again, staggered around the corner, and I leant against a wall. And as I leant against the wall to try and stabilize myself and, and, and rest a little bit, uh, the break in my left forearm gave no support for my wrist. Oh. So as oh. I put my wrist against the wall, oh, no. my hand has folded back and literally lay backwards on my forearm. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Try uh, not to be sick. <laughs> well... See, this is another, for me, it's a another uh, break in the tension of the shooting for me because my thought process was I looked at that and I started remembering, and this is a movie for those people who are old, um, The Naked Gun. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I and must it, be old then. <laughs> you look very young. You look very young. <laughs> if you can remember that, you must watch the replay after replay. <laughs> Thanks, um, but, Derek. But for those, pe those people who don't know the movie, The Naked Gun is uh, almost a slapstick tom comedy about some cops who want to break up a drug ring. Uh, one of the cops breaks into a boat um, and confronts half a dozen offenders. They start shooting him. He's getting filled, filled full of holes. And it's a slapstick comedy, so um, he falls backwards as he's getting shot. He puts his hand uh, out to balance himself so he doesn't fall over, but he puts it on a hot combustion heater. Now he's more worried about his burnt hand than what he is about getting shot. And then he falls sideways and there's a sign that says wet paint and he falls against the wet paint. Now he's more worried about his jacket than what he is about getting shot. Um, and as I leant against the wall and this hand is folded back along oh, my forearm, it's so this, <laughs> the scene from this movie has run through my mind and I've looked at my hand and I've gone, damn, this is not a good day. No, and, not a good day. And it was that level of relaxed 
playful thinking at the same time of, as being cognitively aware um, that I need to do everything I need to do to sustain life for myself, make sure I get myself into a safe place um, and I let my mates know what's going on. So at the time of the shooting, you hear me calling out, I'm hit, I'm hit. I get around the corner of the house uh, and I lean against the wall and I called out to my mates, I'm hit, I'm hurt, um, I need help just so that they were clear that I needed help. As it turns out, they didn't hear that because they'd moved in the other direction um, uh, for certain tactical reasons. Uh, they'd moved in the other direction, so they didn't hear that, but it made me feel better that I'd tried to communicate with them. Um, so leaning against the wall where I was wasn't a safe spot, needed to move to the next corner to see if I could uh, move around the house, either find a safe spot or get back to the cars so that I could get out of there. Uh, I've gone around the corner of the house and there's a, uh, a fence there that I wasn't able to climb. Um, I knew I couldn't go back with the way I was. And at that point, um, as I'd moved around the corner, I'd fallen to my knees and crawled along on my knees. I'd fallen to my hands and knees, crawled along on my hands and knees. Then I saw this fence, knew that I wouldn't make it back the other direction. And I've just collapsed to the ground, rolled onto my back. And that's essentially where I stayed for the next three hours. So, so no one in your team knew exactly where you were? No. No. Okay. All right. They, the video shows that they've gone to a place where they felt they were safe, hmm. that they could start uh, making different tactical decisions. And uh, the video shows them calling out to me, the sergeant saying, call out to Derek, find out where Derek is. We need to get to Derek. Uh, but they were calling out to me. I couldn't hear them. I was calling out to them. They couldn't hear me. And because of things the offenders, the offender was doing, uh, it made it impossible for them to come to get me without completely endangering their own lives. At what point did they realise that you weren't with them? Immediately. Immediately. Okay. Yeah. They, as soon as I called out, I'm hit, I'm hit, they heard that. Right. And as soon as they started moving, they've gone, Derek's down, Derek's hurt. Uh, they started calling, saying, call for backup, we need more weapons here, all that sort of stuff. You see all that on the, the video that's not been made public. Okay. <clears throat> Why was the video made public? Uh, court process. Okay. Uh, it, as soon as it goes into court, it becomes public domain. Um, and uh, at some stage, the media has got hold of that um, and the media have put it up and now it's available on to YouTube. anybody on YouTube. But I've also utilized it when I do presentations um, to give people the real full impact of what I was going through, as well as some fairly graphic photographs, which you would really appreciate by the sounds of it. <laughs> Probably not. Um, yeah, probably not. <laughs> I, I caught the sarcasm. It's fine. Yeah. What, now, you mentioned that you were looking at your watch and being cognitive of timing for court processes. Yeah. What else were you thinking of? For three hours is a bloody long time lying there being shot. So what I did was when I had that conversation with my wife about uh, if I get shot, what's life going to be like for you? We had a conversation around that. I then went away on my own and I said to myself, if I do get shot, what do I want to do as an absolute perfect uh, response to that? And so I knew that a uh, perfect response was going to be A, B, C, D. But I also accepted 
that perfect response was on a continuum where absolute perfection on one end, but down the other end of that continuum would be absolute chaos, where I'm not able to do ABCD. So I would already thought if it ends up down this end in chaos, where I'm not able to be perfect, what might that look like? And one of the things I knew that my mind was going to want to do different things to what my body did. And I knew that there were essentially four things that I knew I needed to do. And I, I implemented this almost immediately. Uh, the first one was control panic. Don't let panic take control of any situation. Because when we're in panic mode, we don't make smart decisions. We make dumb decisions. What's that actual thought process, though? Because panic, I would imagine, is an involuntary response. So how do you actively control panic? Um, panic is about preparation beforehand. Right. So all of our training is about reducing panic, um, uh, making us so comfortable in the situation that we can go, I know what's happening here, but I can still think creatively and uh, problem solved and at a higher level um, than what you do when you're in panic mode. So the first time that we go into training and we actually face somebody armed with a weapon and they shoot us and we train with paintball, so not real weapons, um, but if you've ever, if anybody's ever played paintball, they know how much it hurts. We've got high-tech paintball, which is highly accurate, travels at high speed, and it really hurts. The bruises that it, you know, if it hits us in the wrong place, we're in real trouble. So um, we get thrown into this training all the time so that we know that somebody is going to be pointing a weapon at us. They may shoot us, but it's up to us to respond quicker than what they can um, so that we defeat that. And even if we do get hit, it, it is the ability to fight on and continue uh, going um, that you become very, very comfortable with. And uh, once we go into debrief, uh, we start saying, right, so what were you thinking at that time? Oh, listen, I was so overwhelmed, I wasn't thinking. What would you want to think? And we go through that process. And then when we go into the situation again, we get the initial overwhelm and then we go, no, I should be thinking. And so the overwhelm comes down, the rational thinking comes back up and we go through this more logical thought process. Um, and so that had already been through my mind. I need to control panic um, so that I can do the logical, rational things that I want to do. The second thing that I knew I needed to do um, was to, uh, and now I've got to think of the order I say them, um, oh, control shock, right? So this is the first aid response. Um, now, shock is what happens to the body uh, when we either feel physical or emotional pain, right? Again, the blood gets drained from certain types of, uh, certain areas of the brain. In particular, it gets drained from the frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is where we do our higher level uh, problem solving and creative thinking. Um, and it, the blood gets drained from the frontal lobe um, because the amygdala kicks in and, and there's all sorts of processes there um, and gets sent to the major organs of the body for fight and flight. I knew that I needed to control shock. And one of the ways to control shock is to slow down my heart rate and slow down my breathing. And those were the other two things that I needed to, I, I knew that I needed to do. One, it helped my brain to get back on track uh, and get blood flowing back to that frontal lobe so I can do that higher level thinking. Uh, but slowing down my heart rate, slowing down my breathing uh, was also going to slow down my rate of bleeding. Uh, because I knew I had massive injuries. Uh, as I walked around the corner and as I crawled across the ground, um, there was a trail of blood behind me. Um, I put my 
hand down on the dog kennel at one stage. Um, and as I moved away, I just saw this red handprint of where my hand had been. Um, so I knew that I was bleeding you know, profusely. Um, so I knew I needed to control that. But those are the same four things that anybody needs to do when they get into a situation when they start getting overwhelmed. Calm themselves down, get their rational thinking back up, slow down their breathing, um, and if they have been injured, slow down their, their rate of bleeding as well. So part of the slow down the rate of bleeding was to get my injuries into a place where they were as high as possible above my heart, right? Because then the heart has to push uphill to get the blood out of the injuries. Right now, if you think about being shot 14 times, the amount of pain that comes with that, and then still able to process, I've got to lie down. I've got to. I had to actually fold my legs up or bring my knees up. I was going to ask you that because you got shot in the abdomen as well, didn't you? Correct. Yeah. So how do you get your abdomen higher than your heart? Uh, my yoga. <laughs> <laughs> well. The only thing that I could do was lie on my back and keep my stomach up. If I tried to raise my hips to get my stomach up, that would have put more stress on my body. My mm. body would have had to work harder. My heart would have had to work harder. It would have been pumping out blood everywhere else. So it was the best I could do, right, was – and I, what I talk about is optimal performance. In everything I do, I talk about optimal. So what was the optimal level that I could get those injuries to? And I knew that for my stomach, the best I can do is just lie on my back and relax. Uh, my knees, I brought them up so that the injury to my thigh was higher than my heart. Uh, the injury to my forearm, um, and this will be interesting to those people with a, a medical interest, um, the radial artery in my left forearm was completely severed. Now, generally speaking, when an artery gets uh, severed, uh, you bleed out within minutes. Mm. Um, the doctors tell me that that artery closed off on both ends um, for some unknown reason. I'm not the only person this happens to. I'm not Superman or anything else. And I'm, I'm not a magician. Um, but for some reason, it did on this on this occasion. Um, and so, you know, my my good fortune as a result of this, some of it was just pure luck, not what I did. So you didn't um, have any tourniquets on you? No. No, I okay. didn't. No. Okay. Um, so what are you thinking about? Obviously, you're doing controlling the panic, lowering the heart rate, breathing. But what else? Three hours. What else are you? Three hours. Okay. So there's lots of thoughts that ran through my mind. Yeah. Um, my my immediate focus was on controlling my body. Yeah. Then I had to work out where he was and what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and long he being the offender. He being the offender. My apologies. Um, and long story short. I worked out that he was in the roof of the house uh, and while he was shooting, I knew exactly where he was and I knew that he wasn't a threat to me, not an immediate threat to me, while he was in the roof and while he was shooting. So during that time, I was able to really relax, really calm down, get my my pulse, my heart rate down to absolute lowest I possibly could. But when he stopped shooting, I then had to go into the worry mode. Where is he now? Is he coming out to get me? Is he moving through the house? Will he see me? Um, and so, you know, come with that is the focus on where he is. No focus on my body. My heart rate increases. My breathing shallows to uh, or, or, or increases to shallow and panting. Um, and then when he starts shooting again, I can start thinking about my body and bringing all that down. Now he had to stop shooting from time to time because he had to reload his uh, magazines with ammunition. But as soon as he reloaded, bang, he was shooting again. What was the difference? Like how? Like how did the guys get to you? Um, 
after the three hours? What happened that that meant that they could get to you? Nothing changed. They reinforcements came in. Uh, the offender was still shooting exactly the same as he had. Uh, the the uh, I call them the boys. Uh, the the other guys from Star Group um, came in. They were. Uh, kitted up, they were armed, they were put into a vehicle which had no ballistic protection whatsoever uh, and they were told, we don't know whether Derek's dead or alive. You may be going in to pick up Derek, you may be going in to pick up his body. We don't know whether you will get shot and injured, you may be shot and killed as well. Um, part of their briefing was if you do get shot and injured, stay close to the vehicle because that's going to make it easy for us to get you out. It was a big ask, I think, but but that's the sort of thinking we do. You know, we try to anticipate all those things that might happen, and if it does happen, how are we going to be able to handle it? Um, the boys came in under fire. Um, they risked their lives. They literally put their lives on the line to get to me. Um, but the other things that were running through my mind, just going back half a step, was it wasn't just my body and where the offender is. Um, and some of this will surprise people. Um, I also started thinking about what the future is going to look like if I get out of this alive. I knew that the one thing that I wanted if I was to get out of this was not to get back to Star Group. It wasn't to get back and be able to be a policeman. It wasn't to get a promotion. The one thing I wanted was just to be able to get back to my children and be able to interact with my children. It's what I had thought about when I first had that conversation with my wife, when I first started anticipating what might the outcome be if I do get shot. Um, I'd already accepted I may spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, but so long as I'm able to interact with my kids, then I would be happy. And I talked to a lot of people about um, taking responsibility. And, you know, in the corporate world and even in our families, this is what we want people to do, take responsibility. Um, and I talk about four levels of responsibility. I talk about take responsibility for the choice, take responsibility for the action, and then take responsibility for the consequence, both positive and negative, but then also take responsibility for the outcome after that consequence. Yeah. But you need to take responsibility for those four things before you make the final choice. You've got to do the risk management, the analysis of all those circumstances and say, with that outcome afterwards, am I able to uh, put up with it? Or am I able to live with that uh, end result? And I knew that if I was living my, the rest of my life in a wheelchair, I was still able to interact with my kids, I'd be fully happy. I want to take you back to the guys rolling in on the, on the soft yep. skin um, four-wheel drive. So they get to you. What happens then? So they get to me. Uh, they jump out of the vehicle. I, I hear the vehicle coming in. It's just this roar of this massive V8 engine coming in. I know it's the boys on their way in. Uh, the offender starts shooting even uh, faster than what he had been before. He knows that they're coming in as well. Uh, the boys jump out of the, the vehicle. Uh, and this is, you know, things I've put together as well as what I can hear. Uh, but as soon as they jump out of the vehicle, they go to fully automatic fire and they are just putting weapon, uh, putting bullets into the house to give themselves protection. He's firing at them. They're putting bullets into the house. They didn't know he was in the roof at the time, um, but they're just giving themselves covering fire. For me, as I was lying on the ground, um, it took me back to watching movies of the wagon trains, the cowboys and Indians, a wagon train uh, is circled. They're about to be overrun 
uh, by the Indians. Death is upon them. And then the cavalry comes over the hill. All guns are blazing. The Indians disappear and, and all ends well. That is the, f the feeling that I had as they were coming in. And I heard that fully automatic fire. I it's don't know if the woke, the woke movement will allow us to use that analogy, Derek, but I'm going to leave it in. Okay, yes. Fair <laughs> point. The the old time movies, yes. Um, now not politically correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So um they came in, uh there's no two ways about it. They risked their lives to come in and get yeah. me. Um they uh swamped the house, they didn't know where I was, they had to search to find me. The first guy to get to me uh, said that when he got to me, I was ashen grey. There wasn't enough blood left in my body to give my skin pigmentation colour. Um, I um, had my broken forearm. He said when he looked at my arm, he just saw the bones sticking out of my arm. Oh, uh, yuck! And, yeah, and, and, you know, there are humorous stories dotted throughout this, and I don't get... <laughs> I don't get a chance to tell them all, so I'm going to tell you this one. <laughs> tell me. Um, so he looked at my forearm, and uh, he was a diver as well. Uh, he's looked at my forearm, and he's gone, in his mind, he's gone, Derek's going to lose that forearm from the uh, from the elbow down. There's no way in the world they'll ever be able to save that. Um, but he wanted to be able to break the tension, and breaking the tension with dark humour is an invaluable thing to do. But let's talk about that dark humour again in a moment. Um, so he wanted to break the tension. We were both divers, uh, and as divers, we got to wear seahorses on our collars, much mm -hmm. the same as a priest will wear a, a cross on his collar. We got to wear the the seahorses to signify that we were divers. That's what um, you mark. And um, as uh, as star group operatives, we all like to make fun of each other and play pranks on each other. So. If I left my shirt lying around where it shouldn't be left lying around, uh, somebody would come along and steal my seahorses from my collar and then hold them to ransom, right? And I'd have to buy sticky buns or beers or whatever else. It was an emergency situation. I took my shirt off and left it. No, hands off. That's appropriate. But if I left, if I left them unprotected inappropriately, it was open Big slaver. Yeah. Um, and so... This other diver, knowing how important the seahorses are, has come to me. He's seen my forearm. Derek's going to lose that from the elbow down. Um, and he's just looked at me and said, Derek, at least you've still got your seahorses. <laughs> and, and it was exactly as you're doing now. It was that break of the tension. Uh, but then it was bang, straight back into action. It didn't distract him. We didn't spend five minutes having a joke. No, it was bang, just a comment, a quip, and then bang, into exactly what he needed to do. Um, three other Staries reached me, so four Staries, they picked me up, um, raced me back out across the line of fire, uh, again, risking their lives to, to save mine. Um, got me out to the vehicle, got me into the vehicle, raced me out to the medical retrieval team. Uh, and at the time that I got to the medical retrieval team, the first doctor said he didn't know whether I was dead or alive. Um, I had this conversation with him probably about four, five, six months after the shooting. I went into the hospital to, to just find out from him what it was like for him and thank him for what he did for me. Uh, and he said, Derek, when I first saw you, I didn't know whether you were dead or alive. There was no colour. There was no movement. I wasn't making any sound. And he said I wasn't breathing. And he thought to himself, should I even bother taking a look? And this is what he said to me. And and my eyes did exactly what your eyes did. It's like, seriously? People can't see. I just did 
bug eyes. The, the huge, the huge <laughs> eyes. Oh Dinner my plate. god! Yeah. Oh my god, eyes. Um, and and then he went on. But as I was looking at you, uh, you took this last gasping breath, and there was a flicker of your eyelids. So I thought to myself, I may as well at least take a look. And I've just gone seriously. Oh, thanks very much for that. <laughs> but what he didn't tell me, and and again. It goes back to testament to, to the dedication of these people. He was standing in direct line of fire. Bullets were whizzing around his ears. He wasn't just making the it. The doctor. The doctor, absolutely. Okay. The doctor, it, stories were all around him, but he'd come to meet the vehicle. The vehicle had met him, and where they were, bullets were still flying around. He's got up, uh, got out of the vehicle. He's made the assessment of me, and he has assessed that he needs to treat me immediately. Um, if he didn't treat me immediately, I wouldn't survive. He said I was 30 seconds from death. He treated me for 10 minutes in direct line of fire. Wow. Now, I knew that the team that I was working in had absolute faith in their dedication to looking after me and looking after each other. So as that doctor was standing for 10 minutes treating me in direct line of fire, one of my mates from Starry's has walked up to him and walked up to him. You know, They were there with him, but approached him and said, um, Bill, do not worry about the bullets. Don't worry about the shooter. I've got a flak vest on. I'm going to stand between you and the shooter. If the bullets come this way, I'm going to be all right, and so will you. Now, Bill Griggs, very level-headed, very logical, methodical thinker as well. Um, he said to me, Derek, I looked at this guy. I've looked him up and down. I've looked at his flak vest, and then I've looked at your flak vest again, and it's full of holes. He saw. He said, "I saw some irony in what this guy is saying here, but I didn't talk him out of standing there." But again, it it goes to testament to to the team that I was working in, and and if corporates, elite sporting teams, any sporting teams can get to that environment where they know that they can get a team that will look after them one hundred percent. They can stretch. They can try things um, that are a little bit different at the front end, and if it does happen to go wrong. They've got a team that's 100% coming through to make sure they're going to pick up the pieces together. When you don't have a team that's dedicated, you don't have the confidence or the courage to try something new. So you're stuck with mediocre. So the doctor was treating you under heavy gunfire for 10 minutes and the, and the Staries were around yep. um, supporting. How did they um, get you out of that situation? So they stabilised me, uh, and once the doctor was happy and the and the paramedic nurses that were there as well, as soon as they were happy that I was stable enough to move, um, put me into the ambulance and uh, got me out to the helicopter. Helicopter, well, the helicopter was not completely safe either, um, and we didn't realise it at the time. We didn't realise it. They didn't realise it at the time. I wasn't really paying attention to it at that time. Um, <laughs> but they didn't realise it at the time. But the offender was shooting in such a way that in the newspaper, the local newspaper for that area, uh, over the next week or so, people were reporting that three kilometres away from mm. where he was, mm. branches of trees had been hit by bullets and chopped down. Right, so those the bullets, arc was, of the bullets, yeah. the arc of the bullet, the way it travelled, uh, the way he was shooting, it it still travelled three kilometres. So, but they put me into the helicopter. Um, the pilot, I've spoken to the pilot. He said he's never pushed that helicopter so hard. Um, and they got me back to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and operated on me for six hours. What was the when you woke up from that surgery? What was your first thought? Were you surprised to be waking up? 
Oh, Fiona, I'm not sure I could tell you in public what my first thought was. Okay. Um, and only because it's a... Oh, yeah, it, it was... Okay, I'm, I'm... When I woke up after surgery, it wasn't a surprise to me. I was quite relaxed. Um, I, I didn't say a word. Um, oh, and I'm just trying to think if people are going to judge me badly as a result of this. Um, uh, but I am writing a book and it's going to be in the book anyway. So um, I may as well tell you. Um, I woke up. I was lying in intensive care unit. My wife was sitting next to me. Uh, and when I opened my eyes, she just jumped out, uh, out of the chair, uh, came racing over to the bed. Um, and she just said, Derek. Derek, is there anything, anything that I can do for you? And <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. I, I didn't have to say a word. I just <laughs> glanced down my body, you know, sort of halfway down and then glanced back to her and then glanced back in and back and, you know, backwards and forwards. And she just go, oh, Derek, you haven't changed. <laughs> don't know if the doctors would be appreciating the raise of blood pressure and heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I knew it wasn't going to happen. But but again, that goes back to how relaxed I was. Yeah. You know, I'd already anticipated that, you know, if I get massively injured, then this is part of the process I'm going to have to go through. Did you know that you were going to pass out? Because when they came to you, obviously, if you were grey and didn't have any, weren't, weren't breathing by the time the doctor got to you, you obviously passed out at some point and were on the verge of death. So were you aware of that you were slipping? Yes, absolutely. So I was lying on the ground for three hours before I got to the doctor. Uh, the boys got to me two hours 45, um, and it took 15 minutes for me to get to the doctor and then for them to stabilize me. Um, and um, at the two hours 45, oh, actually, let me reframe that for you. So it took three hours for them to get to me. At the two hour 45 mark is when I started passing in and out of consciousness. Now, again, I'm able to say I was watching my watch the whole time. And so when I started passing in and out of consciousness, when I came back to consciousness, I would look at my watch and see how much time had passed. Um, and when I passed in and out of consciousness, it was just shortly after um, I had recognized that my vision had closed down because there wasn't enough blood going to the rest of my body um, and not enough blood going to my brain to keep the vision going. And my vision went to an absolutely pristine white. Uh, a lot of theories behind the pristine white. Um, but then there were two rifle shots from outside the house uh, fired by Star Group. And there was a dump of adrenaline into my body. Um, and my vision popped back up to perfect and then I was passing in and out of consciousness uh, and when the first guy got to me I came back to consciousness uh, because there was the other spark of adrenaline when I got to the doctor um, I, I came back to conscious again to hear the doctor saying I can't get blood pressure find me a blood pressure um, I can't find a blood pressure and he was in a you know it was it was one of those demanding type you know you need to do this now uh, then I passed out of consciousness again. Uh, then I came uh, back to uh, conscious again as they were sliding me into the back of the ambulance. Um, and there's other stories that you know come out of that little moment. Uh, but I, I was fully aware that I was passing in and out of consciousness. What are the other stories about going in the back of the ambulance? Uh, 
as they slid me into the back of the ambulance, I've come back to conscious, um, and and I'm not disregarding of the seriousness of this whole event, but um, I I looked around me. I could see the ambos. I could see the other starries around me, and the thought that ran through my mind is, I've got dive training tomorrow. <laughs> Oh, but let me tell you, the senior sergeant in charge of the dive training, he was a tyrant. If you didn't turn up on time, if you didn't let him know what was going on, if you didn't apologise beforehand, there was hell to pay. And, and I've, got, I've got dive training tomorrow. Oh, and no. I, saw, I saw one of the other divers and I've called him over to me. And as you can imagine, his eyes were bug-eyed like yours were before, just absolute massive dinner plates. And I swear he was looking for a dying declaration or a pearl of wisdom or a message of love to my family. You know, that last dying declaration. Um, but I've gone, Pato, Pato, apologise to Jeffo for me because <laughs> I may not make dive training tomorrow. <laughs> and he's just looked at me and gone, you're a clown and turned and walked away. <laughs> but again, it's gone back to that level of familiarity, that level of comfort I am with dealing with that challenge. And this all gets brought about by the, the selection course that we do to see how we think when all hope is lost, when we have absolutely stuffed up, how we think when we're under pressure and then taking us through all that training and getting us accustomed to being in those situations where we have to do the higher level thinking despite uh, the level of pressure and uh, intensity that we're under. How, how, well, when did you see the Staries again after when you woke up from hospital, in hospital? Oh, basically straight away. The siege okay. went for 41 hours. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, longest siege ever in South Australia. Uh, most number of weapons uh, rounds fired between the uh, police and the offender, but they came in as soon as the siege was over, bang, they were coming in to, to visit me in hospital. So they, they were visiting me in the intensive care unit and, and the whole time that I was in hospital. How did your – I mean, I'm assuming that if you're training with a team and, and sort of living and breathing those shared experiences, you're tired anyway. But then given the fact that they're now – risk their lives to save yours how did that change the dynamic within the team did it obviously bring you closer or did you just sort of say you needed to owe them some beer or like what correct i was paying beers and <laughs> sticky buns for the rest of my time in starry and i still think i owe some um but they took it one step further and put extra pressure on me that i had to pay about pay it all back uh, i was in hospital for 28 days um and you know that's 28 days of physical, physiotherapy, mental, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but for those 28 days, they went out to my house and did a backyard blitz on my house. And this is before it was on TV or anything else. Um, I'd have moved into a new house. I was still doing paving and gardens and all that sort of stuff. They went out and did the whole lot for me so that when I came home, it was just complete relaxation. I didn't have to worry about it. Um, they got new beds for the kids. They, they, you know, did a fundraiser before there were fundraisers uh, and they got money. They bought new beds for the kids. They bought microwaves for Rosemary so that it made life easy all round. So they really put the pressure on me and I really owe a lot of drinks, you know, right up until now, 27 years later, I'm still paying for it. But, you know, I couldn't say thank you enough. But the reality is it didn't change the dynamic at all because they know that if the shoe was on the other foot, I would have been doing exactly the same for them. And that's just how tight the bond was. Uh, we work with the ambulance service as well. They came into jobs with us. Uh, I'm actually sitting in uh, one of my AMBO mates' uh, places at the moment, 
Uh, he was a member of the team that would go in with Staris, and that bond was just as tight uh, with them as well. You mentioned in your bio you had a two-year recovery, two-and-a-half-year intensive yep. rehab. What was the reality of that? Uh, the reality was that with the injuries I had, I've only got 20, I've still only got 20% of my Achilles uh, on my right ankle. Um, I'm missing a huge chunk of flesh out of uh, my left thigh. Um, 45 centimetres of bowel. My left forearm is less effective than my right forearm, but because of the damage to my right wrist and the ulnar artery and ulnar nerve, my right hand is actually less effective than my left hand. Um, and so I've got all sorts of... Um, incapacities um, or disablements and I, I say the word disablements very particularly I'll come back to that um, so doctors actually told me there's no way in the world I'll ever walk properly again let alone go back to staries go back to policing um, and many many people were um, saying that I probably should just go on a pension and sit back and enjoy my life you know doing nothing for the rest of my life um, mediocrity is not one of those things that comes easily to me um, and the first things that I ever wanted were just to be able to get back to my kids as long as I was able to get back to my kids that's all I wanted uh, I started walking within 10 days um, I had a conversation with the doctor and said you know with the injuries I've got when can I start walking again and he said Derek it's going to be at least another two and a half weeks you know we've got to be able to do xyz uh, and I've gone well I can already do xyz and he's gone, oh, okay, well, I guess you can start walking today. Uh, and so that was 10 days after the shooting. Wow. Um, and the first step was just too painful and I collapsed back into bed. The next day I took two steps, collapsed back into bed, and it just slowly progressed. Um, and it wasn't about me trying to prove anything to anybody else. I just wanted to get well quickly. And I knew that if I push myself within the bounds, within the limits, um, then I'm going to have more chance of a quick recovery and be able to spend more time with my kids. Um, most people thought that I would leave hospital in a wheelchair, um, but I walked out of hospital um, unaided. Um, you know, People were next to me and all those sorts of things, but I was able to walk out unaided. I was only able to walk, I think, about 30 metres uh, and I was met by the media on the outside. They wanted to know, you know, what was going on. And for that interview, I had to sit down again. Um, but that was just a major step for me. And once I left hospital, um, I started walking around the community, going to the shopping centre and all that sort of stuff. And despite the fact that I walked out of hospital unaided, wherever I took a walk immediately after that, I always had a walking stick with me because it's I didn't want to be the hero that only did whatever. I knew that I may regress. I knew that I may get tired. I may knew, I knew that I may trip and need the support of that walking stick. So it didn't phase me at all to uh, be vulnerable enough to be seen as, you know, what some people would say, oh, you're weak. You've gone back to a walking stick. You should be still pushing yourself. No, I just needed to do what I needed for optimal performance. Did you end up getting back into um, Starry Group or did you move on from there given your limitations physically? So the doctors told me I'd never go back to Star Group and I kind of accepted that without accepting it. Mm. Um, I remember the conversation I had with my rehabilitation coordinator. Uh, she came out to the, hospital, to the, to the house um, 
probably a week after I got home. Um, so this is five weeks after the shooting. Uh, and we sat down and she, we'd interacted before. She knew me reasonably well. We had a conversation before we got to this conversation. And, and as you can pick up, I'm fairly lighthearted in most things that I say, uh, as well as being able to be focused and laser focused on the serious. Uh, but she'd picked up on this lighthearted side and she said, okay, Derek, we need to get serious. Uh, let's look at your long-term plan. Um, so let's talk, start with your long-term goal. Uh, where do you want to get to in the end? And I just candidly said, well, I want to get back to Staris and be fully operational. And she literally just went, oh, <laughs> oh you're serious. That's a terrible response from her. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I, I, I pre-framed it by saying I'm lighthearted and that's what she picked up on. She thought I was just telling another joke. She felt so bad when she actually realized she was laughing at something and I was being serious. I wasn't phased by it at all. Okay. It, it was kind of a compliment that, you know, she thought I was being lighthearted and, oh, now she's taking me serious. I wasn't phased by it at all. Um because as soon as she realized, she went back into serious mode. And and I wear the fact that some people don't take me seriously all the time because I am lighthearted quite often, even in the worst situations. So I, I need to accept that. I need to take responsibility for framing it that way and her to be able to respond, to feel comfortable she could laugh. So uh, I had no qualm with that whatsoever. Um, but... That was always my goal. Now, I say that that's what my goal was, even though doctors told me I wasn't going to make it. But in my mind, I wanted to have a crack at it. Mm. If I could get everything, and this is going back to my framing it of, uh, of how I wanted to respond to it before it even happened. Absolute perfection was that I would get shot, I'd get better, I'd go back to work. Absolutely no restrictions, excepting that there may be chaos at the other end as well. Um, and so I still wanted to look at absolute perfection. What would that look like? Um, and for me, that's what it was. But I also had in the back of my mind, doctors are telling me I'm not going to be able to, so it may not happen. And, and I said that to her. That's my goal. It may not happen. But everything I did from that point forward was essentially looking at what's the immediate steps in front of me that I can control, that I can put in place, that I can succeed at, while still traveling towards that goal. Did um, you make there, it? There were highs, there were lows, there were tears, there were dark moments, there were there were such struggles that I had thoughts as to, is this struggle worth it? Should I end my life? Um, wow. and, and a lot of people say, yeah, well, I can imagine that. It wasn't something that I considered for a long time. It was just something that I like to consider every option available to me. And that was an option. So it went on the table as an option and immediately got wiped off the table. Um, but it, it's not a thought that was um, not in my mind at some stage. Uh, but two and a half years after the shooting, I went back to Starry's, fully operational, no restrictions whatsoever. You mentioned um, earlier in our conversation that two years after you were shot, uh, your marriage broke down. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, what was the catalyst for that? Was it the, the stress of the rehab? Um, it's a really interesting question, and the dynamic within that is interesting as well. So I say that it wasn't caused, my, 
my marriage breakup was not caused by the shooting, but it was a catalyst of the shooting. Or the catalyst, the, the shooting was a catalyst for it, but it wasn't the cause. Um, now, the cause was that we didn't have a good marriage, right? It was okay. And as I've said a couple of times, mediocrity doesn't suit me. It was an okay marriage, but it wasn't great. My, uh, my intention when I got married was that I have one life, one love, one marriage. And when I get married, that was my intention to stay that way for life. Um, the breakup of my marriage is the, the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, but after the shooting, I started looking at life differently and saying, this is mediocre. I don't want to put up with mediocre. We did marriage guidance and, and it took us arguments before we got to marriage guidance. Then we had arguments at marriage guidance and, and it just wasn't going to sort itself out. Um, and I had to make that decision that my marriage wasn't a good marriage for the entire time that we were together. Don't get me wrong. We had some sensational times while we were together, but they were you know, spots within a marriage. Um, and and it, overall, it wasn't uh, a great marriage so I made that decision to leave and, and to find a, a better place uh, I still have a very good relationship with my ex-wife um, we can sit down have dinner we do Christmas together with the kids and all that sort of stuff so um, it's a it's a very good relationship now but there was a lot of work to get to there too you've mentioned a number of times that you've got kids and you're a father and <clears throat> um, how, given the career that you took and the group that you ended up in being Starries, how did that change how you parented? Because if you're dealing with worst case scenario all the time, you're dealing with the pointy end of the crims and stuff like that, dealing with dead bodies, you know, trying to find them, all that sort of stuff. How did it change? <laughs> how did it change how you parent? Because I would imagine and I'm saying this as someone that doesn't have children, that you probably were either two ways. You could either go, they've just got to live their life and go with it, or you ended up being a helicopter parent. So I'm, I describe myself as a very fortunate person in many aspects of my life. Um, there are quite a number of police officers who become um, jaded with society because of what we see. 90% uh, of the people we deal with are the worst 10% of people on the face of the earth. We don't get to deal with nice people very often in our job. Um, and some police get the idea that all the public are like this. This is all I see. Um, I'm well, very people fortunate. Aren't, people aren't calling triple zero if it, when they're having a good day. I'm yeah, that's right. For a barbie, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm very fortunate that I was able to uh, keep things in perspective for myself. I kept playing basketball with non-police people as much as I played with police people. Um, and I had lots of other perspectives. Um, and my perspective for my family was always, my family is more important than anything else I do. Uh, and being a parent was one of the, the greatest privileges I could have and it was one of the greatest joys I've ever had in my world. Um, I, I became a stepfather when I first got married. My wife already had two children um, and I still have a great relationship with them. 27 years after uh, I've left their mother, we still all get along well. Um, but my parenting didn't change. Uh, it was always 
uh, risk management with my children, allow them to take risks, take responsibility for their outcomes. As much as we protect them, we've got to allow them to go just that little bit further. Uh, but they've got to be allowed to make mistakes and learn from their mistakes. Um, and and so my parenting didn't change. My attitude to life has not changed. And, and I'm able to say this um, with some amount of uh, legitimacy because uh, we did psychometric testing prior to the shooting because I was in Star Group. We did it annually. After the shooting, obviously, I had to go back and do it again. And when I spoke to the, the police psychiatrist uh, after the shooting, I said, right, you've done the psychometric testing. I've passed. I'm able to go back to Star Group again. Now I want to know. You've done the testing before. You've done the testing afterwards. I want to know have I changed? And if I have changed, how have I changed? And this has always been my approach to life, this introspection, what is, what's happening to me? What can I learn from it? Um, but the psychiatrist, psychologist, sorry, psych, police psychologist, he sat there and he was absolutely pan-faced and he said, Derek, you were crazy before, you're crazy now, you have not changed. <laughs> and that was kind of not the answer I was looking for, but it was that testament to I'm the same person. Yeah. You know, I, I approach life the same way. Um, and, and my kids are risk managers as well as, um, you know, uh, very logical thinking kids. And, and they're going out and doing amazing things, all four kids. So I've got two stepchildren and two biological children. They are just my four children. You mentioned um, in your bio, it mentions you didn't have any PTSD. I don't like saying D because I don't feel it's a disorder. Yep, but, okay, yep. Um, you didn't have any PTS from the um, from the incident or from what yep. you saw on the force. I actually just have done an interview with another gentleman who has started up the police veterans in Victoria group supporting people with PTS. Yep. Um, what do you think is the the difference? Is it just your mentality and you went in or does it just affect everyone differently? Why do you think you didn't end up with PTS compared to other people? Um, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on PTS, stress, depression, anxiety. I talk a lot about it these days, mm. but I'm no expert. So what has caused other people um, their PTS, I don't know exactly. Um, one of the theories that I have as to why I didn't get PTS uh, or stress or anxiety or depression and went back in absolutely passionate about what I do um, is that I'd prepared myself physically, mentally and emotionally prior to the shooting. Um, and I had this realistic conversation about I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. And I had that conversation with my ex-wife. Um, and I said, if I die, what's your life going to look like? Um, because it's not just about me, it's about her as well. Um, and I'd already taken responsibility for the life after. So I may spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. Um, and uh, and I, the words I said to her was, anything better than death is going to be a bonus. So for me, throughout my police career, throughout most of my life, um, I've tried to look at things rationally, logically, uh, as well as I'm a dreamer. I'm, I'm not just rational and logical. I'm, I'm the worst dreamer that you could possibly imagine. I've got some big dreams. Um, but I think the fact that I've prepared myself emotionally and I'd said, if this happens, what's going to happen in my mind? And I was already prepared for it. Um, the other thing that I did, and one of the reasons that I was cleared psychologically um, immediately after the shooting was, um, now remember, this is 27 years ago, um, and men 
and emotions weren't something that was accepted. Men didn't have emotions. That's a girl's thing. And I apologise to, you know, oh, it's a re- anybody, it's a real, anybody it's a reality. It's a reality in terms of different times. The time frame. Time yeah, frame, yeah. that's right, back there. But one of the first things I did after the shooting, five days after the shooting, just out of intensive care, um, I said, get me a psych. I want to talk to a psych. Yeah. Um, and I know that everybody around me has gone, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with this boy? I didn't think there was anything wrong with me at all. I was very, very comfortable. I was still able to be lighthearted while being serious. But what I wanted to do was pick the psych's brain. Hmm. People have dealt with these sorts of things and have not had a good outcome. Some people have had a great outcome. What's the difference? What can I anticipate? What could I do if these signs show up? Um, And I had this conversation over about three hours with one of Australia's best psychiatrists. Um, And he picked my brain. I picked his brain. He's asked me what I would do and how I would handle. Uh, I've picked him. What can I anticipate? Um, And after three hours, and this was just three months after the shooting, so a three-hour meeting, and he cleared me psychologically to go back to work the next day, and I never needed to come and see him again unless I chose to do so. Um, and that has surprised many psychologists until they sit down and talk to me and they go, oh, okay, this is a different way of thinking than what other people think. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I haven't suffered with PTS. Now, let me just put that into a frame of reference for you. Almost three years after the shooting, about yeah, just about around about three years after the shooting, I did get diagnosed with PTS and depression. Apologies, everybody. It was at this very moment that Derek's computer decided to die and I did the podcast interviews remotely, so I was unable to do anything about it. I thoroughly loved having the conversation with Derek, picking his brain about his time on the force and particularly the longest siege in the South Australian history. If you're wanting to book Derek, you can go to humandurability.com.au. He's available for uh, he's available for corporate speaking gigs, so you're able to book him through that. Look out for his book, which he said that he was writing. I didn't get a chance to find out when that was going to be, but look out for it. Lovely speaking with him, and it was an absolute pleasure having him on the podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, and have a great weekend, everybody. Bye. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 